millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. My father, Harry Benjamin, grew up in Westport. He liked to take photos. After he started working in a pharmacy in 1947, he bought a box brownie camera. He began taking photos of family, mates, mates with kegs, and a string of good-looking girls. Kia ora, this is Eyewitness, and I'm Julie Benjamin. While I was looking through some of Dad's prints, I found one that intrigued me. It showed a group of about 20 young men, including Dad, crammed together in a room. They wore shirts, ties, home-knitted vests, woolen jackets, and small rosettes with long ribbons. What was going on? Dad's no longer alive, so Brian, one of his mates, solved the mystery. The photo had been taken before a rugby match. Brian told me most of these men had belonged to the old boys' rugby club in Westport. They're in Dunedin to watch Buller, a minor rugby union, challenge the mighty Otago for the Ranfurly Shield, which Otago had held for two years. It was Saturday, 30th of July, 1949. A bit of info about that year. Labour had been in power for 14 years. But in four months' time, they would lose to National. Kiwis had had enough of never-ending wartime restrictions, such as limits on car imports and rationed meat and butter. Earlier in the year, the government held a referendum on whether to extend hotel closing hours from 6 to 10 o'clock. The country voted to stick with 6 o'clock, but the vote had no effect on after-hours drinking in the buller. Back to the Dunedin photo. A few of the men, like Brian, had recently moved from the Buller to other towns for work. But most of them, like Dad, had just spent 17 long hours on an excursion train from Westport, arriving in Dunedin around noon on Saturday, what Buller folk would call dinner time. They were now catching up over a beer in a Dunedin hotel before the match started at 245 The excursion train had picked up supporters along its route. It had left Westport around 7pm on the Friday, then stopped at Reefton. It went on to Stillwater, just outside Greymouth, through Moana, up to Arthur's Pass, down to Springfield, through Rolleston and Ashburton, on to Timoru, Oamaru and finally to Dunedin. A rugby match between Buller and Otago might sound one-sided, but 11 of the Otago team were away in the All Black squad in South Africa. Otago thought they'd still win. They were the heavier team, but the Buller players were fit and strong. It had rained overnight and the day was overcast. 
Newspapers stated that the condition of Carisbrook's ground probably suited the coasters. It was Otago's first challenge of the Ranfurly Shield season. Trevor Craddock was nine years old. His dad, Bill Craddock, was Buller's manager and a councillor on the New Zealand Rugby Football Union. You didn't get many chances to play a Ranfurly Shield game. They'd only take one or two minor unions probably during the season. So I think we were... Well, the old man was so involved in New Zealand Rugby Union, I think he got us uh, into the first challenge. But it was always a big thing. Otago were the best team in the country. Buller had held the Seddon Shield since 1947, so for two years, challenges like Marlborough, Nelson and West Coast came to Westport. This meant that Buller supporters were bored. They jumped at the chance to get away for the weekend. 23-year-old Vera Cooper was from the coal mining town of Milliton and knew a lot of the North Buller players. She went down with a crowd of family members and friends. Oh, well, we're all keen football fans, of course, and when we knew Buller were going to challenge for the Shield, they didn't all have cars in those days to go down, so they put a train on. The boys arranged all that, the men and the party, and after working full day on Friday, we all went over to the station, and I forget how many carriages there were, but it was full. And all the way to Neden, travelled all night and got there the next day. The Buller team was going down to Neden by chartered bus, so Bill Craddock went with them. Bill arranged for his son Trevor to go on the train with his friend Jimmy. Jimmy's father, Bill Ryan, he was great friends with Dad. I'd sort of said to Dad, oh, he spoiled me. He said, oh, I'd love to go on that. And he said to Bill, if you take your son Jimmy and Trevor, I'll shout you. Bill jumped at it. We were lucky. Ken McDonald's father Gordon worked for the railways. In fact, he'd started the railways division of St John Ambulance. They thought it would be a good idea to have somebody on the train that knew a bit about accidents. I just got down on a prep ticket, about 15. George Smallholm was the halfback. George and his brother Oliver, captain of the Buller team, were into flash American cars, not trains. Went in Oliver's car, he had a 49, it's a beauty. Brand new 1949 Ford V8. We had all V8 trucks, and American cars were very hard to come by, but Kilkenny's the V8 agent. We would have been their biggest customer. The Buller team left Westport by bus on Wednesday, 27th of July. The Smallhome brothers hit the road a bit later, but first they had to find a player who'd gone AWOL. We left Wednesday afternoon. Alec Cummings, Joe Beveridge and myself. Oliver's wife went, Vera, and then Oliver called. Joe Beveridge hadn't gone on the bus, one of the lot. We hunted him up. Don't know whether he just missed it or whether he was a bit unsure whether he wanted to go or not. On Friday the 29th, the excursion train pulling ten carriages full of supporters left Westport in the early evening. No one took luggage, except for Vera. We just took some fresh clothes. And our makeup bag, of course, couldn't go far without that. Oh, and we had our gloves with us and scarves. We were all rubbed up for the weather. 
garden with blue big scarves and hats with pom-poms on it and their little rosette. Your railway pillar with a white case on it. Trevor and Vera recall you made your own fun on the train. The seats could fold back and face each other so there could be a foursome if they were playing cards. We were basically up on the rack. Probably Bill's idea, he was an old rower man. And then we didn't take up a seat, so we were quite happy up there. He had a pillow, and then you had your books to have a read, but you were fascinated with it once it got going, and you were going through the gorge. And uh, looking down and overseeing, and you got great views out the windows. And then all the action and the seats, they were all talking. You know, they all got tiddly and telling stories and acting the coat, but pretty refined with them who carried away. One particular fellow, he walked all the way from Westport to Dunedin, walked back and forth through the carriages, being noisy and loud, and we were trying to get some sleep, and he was getting told to get out and stay out and all the rest of it, but he kept coming back. It was quite a laugh, really. I don't think anybody would have slept through the... And we had sing-alongs, we sang, and... At the time, you never noticed the time, but it was a long way in a train. You didn't step out of line. That age was like, yeah, if you went to a pub with your parents, you didn't say a word and you kept around the background. <laughs> was, you behaved yourself, put it that way. Ken stayed in the guards' van most of the time. Around half past ten, the train pulled into Stillwater, just outside Greymouth, to find the police waiting. I was awake until I got to Stillwater. I think there was a bit of a ha-hoo there about Jokers having bottled a beer on the railway line. George Bilber was the cop. He was a policeman at either Stored or Greymouth. He was there. He was making the odd one break their bottle of beer over the railway line. Dad knew George because he went to school with him. He said, no, you can't do that. He said, that you've got to either tip the beer out or get rid of it some other way, but you're not breaking the bottles over the railway lines. One or two of them had, uh, yes, they had their beer. They can't go far without their beer. Ken was still awake around midnight when an unusual character boarded the train. And Dad said, well, I'll take a stretcher and you can have a sleep on it because there was always one for emergencies. But in Bonnie, there was a joker got on there. He was going to the races at, at Rickerton. He had no intention of going to the rugby. The big joker worked in the sawmill. He was about six foot eight high and he had feet on the size of draft horses, had hands like Benzo Savills, massive. And by the time I got back from out in the carriage talking to Dad and that, he was on the stretcher asleep because he had a bottle of snaps with him. <laughs> it was now five hours into the journey. The train entered the Otera Tunnel. Some passengers were still drinking, others were asleep, but Ken wasn't. Well, we got halfway through the Oterra Tunnel. Some silly Ike must have pulled the emergency handle, which locked all the brakes on. Twelve-year-old Bob Pratt from Waimangaroa had been asleep, but woke when the train stopped suddenly. Some of them had got off the train in the tunnel, and they were walking up and down between the carriages and the wall, and you could see them quite easy because the lights from the carriages... So we were stopped for a wee while. By the time the guard got them all back on again and checked there was no one off in that. And the train was stuck there for at least half an hour until we got air pressure up to get the brakes released before we could get going. Of course, it was uphill too. 
It took a while to get going again. Around four in the morning, Ken finally got his bed back. By the time we got to Rolleston and this old Jackie got off, I slept from there to about Omaru, I think. He got off and he lost his wallet. I found his wallet under the uh, stretcher. But how they got it back to him, I wouldn't have a clue. They might have caught up with him at Esperton or even done Sandal. I stayed in the van most of the time and just, well, it wasn't the thing to, for a teenager to go out mixing with all the drunks. <laughs> or yahooing and making a hell of a noise. Would have probably been safe, but I'd just seen her stay in the yards van and look out the window. I can remember where they had a little alcove that sat out over the rail. You could see where you're going, you could see where you've been. And I can always remember looking out to the left-hand side and seeing the monument up on the hill at Round Red Omaru somewhere. Hungover, tired, feeling a bit grubby, the supporters rolled off the train at Dunedin Station at midday on Saturday to find a welcoming party who took them to find some food. Restaurants had been allowed to stay open for the visitors. Then, most of them, including young Bob, joined the parade, led by a brass band. I was on that mum myself, marching up to Carisbrook. Well, I was only a kid. Big city in here and bloody eyes all open, wide open. and <laughs> I hadn't been to Christchurch or anywhere. Vera's group had other plans. Mr Wingate, who was the manager of the Hotel Buller, he had arranged for us to go to his friend's hotel and give us a room so we could have a watch and change clothes. And we washed our faces and cleaned our teeth. They even gave us a pot of tea and coffee. At Carisbrook, Trevor Craddock and the Ryans had fantastic seats. One of the perks of being Bill Craddock's son. He always kept his eye on us and we weren't that far from where he, he was seated with the officials. And he always come down and he'd be handling Bill a five pound note. Dad was very generous with his money. 15-year-old Lynn McGreevy was at Carisbrook with her dad. She was from Westport, but her family had moved to Dunedin. Lynn wore a buller rosette made by her mum. The brass band was in the grounds, and when they did arrive, the coasters, the whole place cheered. didn't matter whether they were Otago supporters or not, but they all cheered. George Smallholm was from Granity, population 500. He was in the tunnel, waiting for the game to start, feeling a bit like a stunned mullet. I always got too nervous. Night before, I never slept much. I'd never seen such a big crowd. Played in front of such a big crowd at a football match. <laughs> there was uh, quite a bit over 20,000, Emily. It was in Westport, I suppose. The grandstand was always full and crowds around the ground, I don't know, a thousand or two, I suppose. Winners won the toss and the target kicking off in the first Ranfurly Shield game of the year. Here's Fitzgerald now. There's the referee's whistle and away they go. Buller got off to a flying start. And they're right in an attacking position now, only 10 yards from the Otago line, and the Buller supporters go mad. And in she goes, they jump high for it, it's down on the ground now, and the Otago pushing out, it comes to Buller, it's gone on to Dixon, he sends it on to Small home, the captain, he puts, and they're racing for the line for it, with more coming up now, and it's a tri- it might be a try, I don't know, no, too many hands, he rules a fourth, that was very, very close. Jack Hughes, the reserve prop, saw the try. Being totally unbiased, we thought Buller scored, but the referee was 
from Canterbury. Hmm. Ken and George still feel they was robbed. Billy Mum was over for a try in about the first five minutes. They reckon the ref was that slow that he couldn't give up and he missed it. Too many hands on the ball. <laughs> it would have been a try today. No TV replays back then, sadly. Jack Williams, who went down on the train, believes that today's forwards are physically different. The 1949 Buller Fords got to work out through their jobs. They were sawmillers, brick workers and coal miners. So they had some good forwards around those days. You know, they weren't big fat men. They're all solid and lean, but strong. Because they worked in the mines, you see. Nowadays, they're all trained in the gym. And they're not the same as getting out, pushing a wheelbarrow around somewhere, and you know, get your strength around your shoulders and all that sort of thing. They don't do that. That's all gone. There would be miners. You'd have Dennist and Milliton and Stockton. Mac Ryan, he worked in the Stockton mine. Joe Beveridge worked in Stockton. Ralph Bennett, he worked for the mines. I think he was an electrician. He was Stockton. Warner Cunniff and Toby Anderson worked in the Militant Mine. Jim Kissel, a supporter, remembers how one of the Fords was hardcore. <laughs> old Geordie Anderson. Old Geordie used to go have a few pints before he played his game. After a shaky start, Otago struck back. They got an unconverted try, then a penalty. Remember, in those days, a try was worth three points. You just take it as it comes. They were leading 6 0. Mm. 30 minutes into the game, Buller pushed over for a try, scored by George. It wasn't converted, so it was 6 3. Just before half time, Buller's back swung into action. Lord, the Bullock backs are all in position for a try, and there's a try to Buller again. They were all over Otago that time, caught the Otago backs right out of position. Again, the try wasn't converted. At half-time, Bob Pratt seized his chance. We must have been pretty well at the front because I hopped over the fence, ran out onto the paddock. I never waited. I thought I was going to be first because <laughs> I used to do it here. <laughs> I had to get off because they were all going under the grandstand, both teams, and I walked off with George home. Yeah, I think George might have helped me get back over the fence. George was feeling pretty positive at half-time. So was Mark Nichols. He used to be an all-black. Bill Craddock brought him in to help coach the backs. Nichols told them, kick for touch. Well, we're doing not too badly. Because Mark Nichols, I remember him saying, you've got them. But they hadn't. Buller fought really hard in the second half. Six all the scores. Pressing hotly now, they're trying to get these extra points to get the shield. Coming throws it in, it comes back to Smallham. Smallham on to Dixon, and Dixon won't run. He turns round and kicks for touch again. But in the end, Otago kept the shield. Seventy years later, Jack's still feeling bitter. When I asked him about the result, he just about leapt out of his chair. Chapin Nichols, he was a back coach. Told him, kick for the line, don't go for the gold. And we could have won it. Was right in front. Yeah, they could have kicked the damn thing right in front of the goal. Both. Well, I don't think he wanted us to win it. I've always said that. But there you go. Although many in the Buller agreed with Jack, some had another theory. We should have won it. If they'd have shot the referee. Well, they reckon he was a Catholic. <laughs> that was the theory anyway. That was a great match. It was right till the last whistle. 
And if we'd had a West Coast referee, we'd have won by 20 points. When we played games with referees from around New Zealand, sometimes the interpretations seemed to be a little different from what we'd been used to. Whether you won by 100 points or lost by 100 points, you're always cheated. Even today, Trevor and Jack wish the game had ended differently. And anyway, they ended up a draw, which was great, but it would have been greater if we'd have taken the shield home. It would have been a marvellous thing to have it on the square, you can imagine it, couldn't you? Lynn sums it up nicely. They didn't go home with their tails between their legs. They were very pleased with themselves. But I think they all realised if someone had just got a try, they won it, but they didn't take it home. But it's only a game, and life goes on. Vera and her mates got ready for a night out in the big smoke. We went to have a meal, and the place was alive with people off the train and people that had been to the match. We went back to the hotel and put a fresh face on and all went to the dance. Mm, went dancing. Ken and his dad went to the Regent and saw a film called The Return of October. Dad had a sleep and I seen the picture. <laughs> Gentlemen, please take your partners. Vera's crowd went to the famous Joe Brown dancers in the town hall. We danced all midnight in a beautiful big hall, petitioned, and you could go from the old-time dancing for the elderly if they wanted it, or through into the modern. Fox rocks, quick step, waltzes, we did all those, but all the other old dancers were the lancers and square dancing. The music was wonderful. We sat in there and had a look at the oldies. We shared the men around with the ones that didn't have a boyfriend or a husband with them. My brother was a lovely dancer, Bert, and he danced nearly all night with his sister. The men might have gone off and had a beer, but us girls, we'd gone to the dance. Ken and Trevor's groups got back to the station in plenty of time, unlike some. The fun continued on the train. I think the train left again about midnight. It was the odd one got didn't get left behind, but they were sailing very close to the wind. There was probably little hijinks, neck and the goat. They never stopped the train. There was always noise right through the journey home. Everyone was pretty musical, so I think there was guitars, harmonicas. At that age, the old ones didn't sleep anyway, they'd, they'd go all night. George and Oliver Small Home got into the 49er on the Sunday morning to begin the long drive home to Granity. Oliver said to me, I've got a sore shoulder, you'll have to drive. So off we went. At Haranui, you know, we'd got the ups and downs and everyone was sort of snoozing. And so I got up to about 70 and, and then went over, whoa. <laughs> Back on the train, the supporters were told there'd been a derailment on Saturday near Reefton and the railway line was still blocked. So they had to get off their train at Greymouth. We had all these buses waiting for us and we all got into the buses and finished our way home by bus. Which meant that even though it was a Sunday, they could call in at the Barrytown pub for one last drink. Jack remembers what happened once they got back on their bus. Yeah, we were all stopping there, yeah. Toilet break, and because uh, we had that pillow fight. I remember they broke a window. 
put a bit of pop in there. The next day, Monday, was a work day. How did they feel? And was it really worth it? Oh, a bit tiredish. When you're young, you could take those sort of things, you know. I went back to work. The smell of the coal in the engine, we had the smell of it up your nose for days afterwards. It was all in your clothes, the smell of coal. But it was fun, yes, we loved it. I thought it was marvellous myself, yeah. So we all talked about it. And we're still talking about the ones that are still alive. <laughs> well, it was sort of one of those things, it was a bit of history. Yeah. Buller have never won the Ramfurly Shield, but if today's points system had existed back then, they would have won 10-8 with their two tries to one, and Jack would have seen his beloved Buller team defend the Shield in Westport's Victoria Square with its single grandstand. In the scrums and rucks, Buller dominated that day, despite being the lighter team. Buller supporters must have been so proud seeing their team playing well in what was expected to be a one-sided match. But they should have been proud of their own efforts also. To have made such an epic train trip for such a short stay and with so little sleep. Oliver Smallholm's Ford 49er signalled a challenge to public transport. Roads in the Buller district slowly improved and cars became available and affordable. Then the Westport to Stillwater railcar service ended. Today, only trains carrying coal pass through the Buller Gorge. There's a lot going on in that photo of Dad's that I talked about at the start. It captures the end of the group's adolescence and the start of their adulthood. Some of Dad's mates in that picture had already moved away from the Buller to their first job in other towns. One had just got married. Dad would turn 20 on the Monday after he returned from Dunedin. In a few months' time, he'd meet my mother in Westport. She was from Auckland. Four years after this photo was taken, Dad would finally get his driver's licence on their honeymoon while staying in Westport. Then, instead of catching the rail car to Stillwater or taking a bus down the coast road to the glaciers, they hired a car and drove south. Thanks for listening. This episode of Eyewitness was produced by me, Julie Benjamin, with help from Justin Gregory and engineered by Jeremy Ansell and Jeremy Veal. Tim Watkin is RNZ's executive producer for podcasts and series. Thanks very much to Nā Taonga Sound and Vision for use of the archival audio. Many thanks also to Nā Korero Tukuiho Oral History Trust Fund and the Buller District Council's Creative Communities Scheme. You can hear more Eyewitness episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, really anywhere you usually get your podcasts, as well as at rnz.co.nz.